Episode 10 The 2023 Greater Austin Comic Con and welcome back to Creative Credit, a show dedicated to conversations with talent from across the comic book industry. Artists, writers, inkers, letterers, colorists, and more. I'm your host, Chad Bokelman. In this, our 10th episode, we'll be conversing yet again with several self-published indie creators that I met during the weekend of June 24th and the 25th, 2023, in Cedar Park, Texas, at the Greater Austin Comic Con. As with the last convention indie clip show I did in episode 9, I did not go into the interviews you're about to hear with much, if any, foreknowledge. As I learned last time, and still believe now, if you're going to spontaneously interview indie creators you've not encountered before, Sacrificing preparation is the cost paid to provide these wonderful talents with a platform, however small, to pitch their projects. Last episode at the Hill Country Comic Con, I purchased one issue per creator of their available offerings. This was in an effort to provide a brief clip sharing my own thoughts on each of the offered works. Well, unfortunately, between that episode and this one, I was laid off from my job. Now, luckily, I found another and am already back among the employed, but as a result, I'm still quote-unquote catching up on my new pay cycle, and I wasn't able to afford to do the same at Greater Austin Comic Con. I will, however, make an effort to find and read a handful of pages or artistic samplings for each of the projects mentioned in this episode to provide some insight into their works, as well as restate the details of where best to find the myriad of works presented here in this episode. But before we get started, I absolutely must beg of your attention for a volume warning. While the microphone I use to record at these conventions is incredible, it's only as good as its user. By that I mean I have to first make an effort to not put the mic right up to my mouth and speak loudly to drown out the noise of the convention around me. In the first couple of conversations, when I speak, my audio quote-unquote peaks. That is to say, maxes out to a point I was unable to fully address in my editing process. So please, before these interviews begin, take a moment to adjust your audio to half of your available volume, and then make adjustments as necessary. And of course, I'll strive to do better moving forward. And, at the end of this episode, if you'll bear with me through any audio concerns, I offer you one final surprise. A conversation with a comic book legend. Best known for his works on Man-Thing in the 70s, and as co-creator of Howard the Duck, among other credits, artist Val Mayrick. But, without further ado, I present to you 
my conversation with the comic book creators at the 2023 Greater Austin Comic Con. Hey guys, it is day two of Greater Austin Comic Con, and I am with Brian and Sela of Pathway Comics. Hey guys, how's it going? We're having a great day. Going well, yeah. Good sales, good good audience out here at the convention so far? Yeah, we had uh, somebody come back that was here the first day, and they, they went home and read our comics, and they came back to buy the entire full set a second, second time. time. <laughs> so yeah, I'd say that's a great day. Yeah. They bought it twice over? Yeah, yeah they like it that much. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the, uh, the comic, The Dimensionals. Well, we have a team. It's an all-ages superhero story, sort of like the comics we grew up with in the 80s, but with a more modern take and more female characters. So we have a team of girl superheroes that are all uh, 12 and under, and they're the first kids uh, in their universe that have ever had superpowers, but it turns out that kids make better superheroes than adults. Yeah, the powers are more concentrated the smaller you are. Uh, so the kids come out of the process with you know more power than anybody before, but also bigger Achilles heels, so the tables can be turned on them at any moment. So the stories still are you know have tension, stakes. yeah, high stakes. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And when you have teenage angst and drama, I'm sure that uh, that really escalates things. <laughs> yeah, so far they have been very um, trying to do the right thing, but we are only on issue seven, which was our time travel issue. Um, yeah, every comic we do generates more ideas for future stories, so we've got a whole long slog ahead of us with uh, lots of fun to come. So, yeah. Hey, it's realistic. I'm 36, and as, as long as I've been a comic book fan, I've always said, look, I, would I help people? Sure. But I'm sure it'd also knock over a few ATMs and set myself up first before then. So have one of our kids, as soon as they get costumes, she's like, these masks. We could do anything we want with these masks on. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> There's, There's at least a little of that in there. Yeah. I did have a chance to browse just a small little bit online. I saw there was lots of STEM stuff in here as well. Is that right? Yeah, um, my husband is the writer and illustrator, and he's really inspired by uh, science and history. And so we infuse those, but mixed with a lot of fun and comic book nonsense, um, into like the powers and the thought process behind them. Um, like we have Bosonic Girl, who her power is like she sort of behaves like a boson particle, so she can phase things into herself and phase into other objects. But um, the Achilles heel is that she has to be able to fit like her biggest part she's only seven so her shoulders are kind of the widest part of her and she can go into like an open book even if it's big enough but if somebody closed the book she would get stuck and so we have we think about the science a little bit like we have a size changer megalith um who's sort of like ant-man but we thought well, if she was going to actually change her size and her lungs were increasing in size, the air molecules don't increase in size at all. So she has to, when she changes size, she has to hold her breath and do it quick and then go back to the right size or she would pass out. So playing around with like the square cube law and stuff like that in the books. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> well, it's good because, I mean, sometimes you're like, oh, here's just my take on a speedster. Here's my take on a blah, blah, blah. But it sounds like you guys are creating also like unique powers and setting some rules to your universe a bit. Yeah, right. We absolutely. definitely care about the storytelling aspect. And then relative to history, we're based in Texas. We live here in Austin and uh, some landmarks around Austin sometimes uh, show up in our comics. Like we've got the Elizabeth Nay Museum on our cover and the downtown Austin library shows up. It's like a fun setting. Yeah, they're set in Kansas for the most part. It's like supposed to be, you know, what if NASA was you know created in the geographic center of, of the United States 
as was originally the plan before LBJ had it all moved to Texas instead. Uh, but then because we're ourselves in Texas, we're always finding excuses to bring the girls down here and have them interact with, you know, stuff that we're excited and inspired about down here. Nepotism much, LBJ? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> well, I know you had your kids with you earlier. I'm sure, what's it like, like having like a little focus group to run this stuff by? That's uh, been incredible. It's yeah. been really helpful. It is. It is. You know, um, yeah, we show the kids our comics all the time and get, you know, springboard ideas off them and things like that. And they are not shy about letting us know no. how they feel. No. <laughs> we, but we use them, too. Like, some of our characters have been actually conceived and designed by our kids. And we have a short story in there by one of our... Our daughter had, uh, did one of our characters in a short story, and we included that. And she's also figure modeled because all of our uh, characters are girls sort of similar in size and shape to her so she'll like get in weird superhero positions for brian to get reference yeah 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 yeah. so it's handy to have the kids but they're your biggest critics (laughs) they are so yes (laughs) yes Yes. they would like to just take it over and do it their way (laughs) i've heard i've heard from a lot of people like as i've interviewed some celebrities and stuff but like when they have their own kids no matter what ilk of life they are your parents are never cool, and what they do is never cool. So you could be the biggest celebrity in the world. They're like, oh, I don't want to see dad's movies or whatever. Are they the same way with your stuff? Just a little bit? They're like, ah, I really don't have time to read your book today. Actually, you know, they... Uh, <laughs> they're big so, readers, and they do readers. enjoy the comic. Yeah. Right. They'll, they'll go for like a few months without looking at our stuff, and then they'll, you know, pick one up, and they'll be like, hey, you got... This is really good, you guys. <laughs> yeah, they sort of act surprised, yeah. like when Brian does a drawing, <laughs> that they're like, "This looks just like the character." <laughs> like they get excited still, so we've got that going for us. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Where can people find the uh, the issues? Um, we actually are in a few uh, stores around town. We're at North Lamar Half Price, Austin Books in Central. Out south, we're at Tribe Comics. Up north, we're in uh, Titan Moon in Cedar Park and Rogues Gallery in Round Rock. But you can also contact us on Instagram and Facebook, and we're able to mail order our comics as well. That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, and enjoy the rest of your convention. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was nice meeting you. <laughs> And that was my conversation with Brian and Cela Douglas of Pathway Comics about their kid-friendly series, The Dimensionals. You can find them easily by searching for Pathway Comics on Facebook. In googling the combined search terms of both Pathway Comics and The Dimensionals, I also stumbled upon a website, tapas.io, that's T-A-P-A-S dot I-O, where it seems several pages of The Dimensionals are posted. The book is just as Brian and Sela described as four young, ordinary girls fatefully meet in the wrong place, but at the right time and gain superpowers. This all-ages series is definitely a good option to provide a young reader as they start their recreational reading journey. On to the next conversation! All right, guys, we are at day two Greater Austin Comic Con still, and I am here with Ryan of Bad Dill Studios. How you doing? Doing good, man. How about you? I'm doing good. How's your con been so far? So far, it's good. Um, really enjoyed it. It's the first time I'm doing it this year, so I mean, uh, definitely be back next year. You do a lot of cons around the area, or just in Texas, or just kind of do the whole circuit whenever? Oh, pretty much uh, mainly Comic Palooza in Houston. That's where we're from. Um, I've done Wizard Con in Austin before. Um, so I would like to do it 
you know, year round, but it's one of those things where if you get into it, you can get into it. And if you can't, well, then you can't. So. Schedule, table cost, all that stuff. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Table costs have been going a lot at different conventions for a long time. So I'm 100% with you. Tell me a bit about Asteroid Space Squad. So Asteroid Space Squad is a comic book that basically was created out of a coffee company that me and my business partner um, both own. Um, I met him at uh, a small market in Houston. Uh, we really hit it off. I liked his branding. It was, you know, the product he had was really good. And so he asked me to do some work from him. And then uh, one thing led to another. We had all these characters that we were using for the advertisement. And then we said, well, let's do a comic book. So we did one comic book. And then people were like, well, where's issue two at? And I'm like, well, I guess we'll do issue two. And so that's how basically all this got created. Did you launch it through like crowdfunding and Kickstarter or did you just do your own thing? Yeah, I know it was all funded okay. out of pocket and um, we're lucky enough now to where the company's pretty much funds itself, which is what we want, you know. For At the very least, break even, right? <laughs> well, tell me a bit about the actual uh, content, the actual issues. So, um, Without spoiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the story is basically just about two friends that are bounty hunters and we... Um, put a lot of coffee references because that's our business so it's like these guys who just enjoy coffee um it's a ton of pop culture references um just a quick spoiler there's a uh, very prominent figure in pop culture that is referenced in the first comic and he gets his head chopped off um but it's basically about two best friends that are bounty hunters and every issue is hey their boss is like i need you to go get this guy and they're like all right and so they go get this guy but they're very much, um, there's like an essence of Mr. Magoo there. So they're always doing this. They're just luckily getting by, but they're just like idiots who are just trying to do their best at their job. Stumbling their way to yeah. success. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, you know, we try to be funny with it. And so we, you know, we hope people enjoy it in that, in that fashion. Gotcha. And you have two issues out so far? Correct. Yes, two issues. And is the third coming when? Um, hopefully sometime this year. Um, this comic basically spawned three or four other ideas for comics and that's how big deal got started because we were like okay well now we need an umbrella for all these other ideas that are not related to this at all um and being the guy who writes it inks it draws it colors it it, it takes up a lot of time so it sucks being a creative sometimes you're like i have this idea oh wait but i also have this idea i I don't, I don't write, I don't draw, but even with podcasting, my poor co-host on the LanternCast, he, he'll wake up and there'll be like a long form message of me going, I had this idea for an episode and then what if we did this and what if we did this? He's like, Chad, I haven't talked to you in like a week. <laughs> what happened? I know. We, we actually just started our own podcast. So, uh... Um, this, what was it? It was like the Asteroid Coffee Podcast. Or yeah, it was just the Asteroid Coffee Podcast. But um, it was because we both love a lot of uh, pop culture stuff. And so we're just talking about the cons and what's going on with pop culture. And um, it's just basically just us complaining about everything. Uh, so between trying to find time to do that now and then do this and then actually make coffee for the business and stuff, it's it, it can it can be a lot at one time. It's a full-time job. And then some. All right. Well, people want to find Asteroid Space Squad or anything else. How do they, or your upcoming ideas that you're kind of fleshing out, how do they do that? Um, the best way to follow us would be asteroidcoffee.com. Um, all of our social media things are referenced there. So they can just go there and follow us if they want to. And then also buy coffee products from there. Okay. So there is a shop where they can get issue one, issue two, and these prints and everything else that you got over here. Huh? Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and have a great rest of your con. Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me.
And that was my conversation with Ryan of the Asteroid Coffee Team. Most all of their content and products mentioned in our conversation can be found on AsteroidCoffee.com, where you can purchase the Asteroid Space Squad comic, merchandise including shirts, hats, tumblers, and mugs, and of course, coffee. Now, while I was unable to find any way to read their first issue online, their merch gives you a great look into the artistic style of their project. Their website also includes an embedded YouTube video offering a brief trailer-style glimpse at the comic. Oddly enough, I think their style, both writing and art, can be encapsulated by one of the prints they chose to offer on their shop. Their rendition of the poster from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. If you know, you know. On to the next conversation. All right, guys, it is still day two at Greater Austin Comic Con, and I am here with Brian. Brian, how's it going? Pretty good. Self-proclaimed master of villains, I see. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I decided to focus on the bad guys because there's a lot of them. They have the better stories. And if you go to conventions and you go to an artist alley, you will see about 500 Spider-Mans, 5,000 Batmans, and maybe five or six of their uh, bad guys. And I know that there are more bad guys for Spider-Man than just Venom and Carnage, and a lot more villains for Batman than the Joker and Harley. But then again, people probably just draw Harley for the sex appeal. Uh, as a Green Lantern fan, I would love to see more Sinestro and stuff like that. For sure. I am doing a Sinestro. I can't wait to see that. I'm going to have to make note of your website to check that out. And also the Black Lantern, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are on my list too. So. As singles or as like a Trinity sketch? Single singles. Okay. Perfect. I... <laughs> Do you? I, I see here you have the first issue of a new series you're doing called The Archive. This is your first comic at all, right? First, first comic ever. What's it like doing the sequential now? It's something I've wanted to do since 1987. I picked up an issue of Uncanny X-Men 223 with Carrie Gamble was the guest artist. I opened it up and that first page, it was like, at 10 years old, I was wanting to do comics. Yeah. So it took a long time. I had to finally find a style that I was happy with when doing a comic. And when it hit, it just finally hit. And it's going to be a horror anthology. I write it, pencil it, ink it, color it. Yes, it's black and white colors, but it's still colored. And I do the lettering myself. Wow, that's a, that's a full-time job and then some. To say that is putting it mildly, yes. And you showed me the, an issue of it. You have a lot of like backup material in there to, and to really flesh out the process of getting it made and stuff like that. Some of your original art for it, which was highly detailed. So I can tell why you changed it up a little bit. Yes. <laughs> I have tried a simple, more cartoonish style. Then I'd wind up just going detail. I tried going detail, burned out after one page. Because my, my regular style is very detailed. And I just could not pull a Todd McFarlane on it. You were telling me a bit about the premise for this, and it's kind of Crypt Keeper S, but not. Yes. Yes. And I was thinking of also like Kane from House of Mystery and stuff like that. Yes. So my guy, he's he actually says he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't bother with titles, but if you must, you, he, you can call him the archivist. 
you know, he's above us. I even wrote using a thesaurus, so he talks like he's above us. And when we die, our life story is compressed into a book. Our words, deeds, dreams, everything into a book. And at some point in his existence, he decided, I'm just going to start messing with people. That way the stories are a lot more interesting. An immortal who got bored. Essentially, yes. <laughs> uh, so some of the stories that... So we only have issue one or zero out here so far. Where are we... Without some weird question, without spoiling, where are we going from here? Can I cuss? Absolutely. So the first issue is going to be a Lovecraftian fuck around find out. Yeah. Uh, I have. I'm going to cover stuff, everything from zombies, torture porn, regular horse slasher, um, an homage kind of to the pr- getting ready scene from American Psycho. Okay. I have one story where I'm going to turn a board game into a torture device. Um, I have one story that's just gore for the sake of gore. You know, if there's a sub-genre of horror, I will most likely touch on it. You know, you're actually coming in at a good time because I'm not sure how many comics you yourself read, but horror stuff is getting crazy good right now with a lot of different publishers. Easy example, something is killing the children and stuff like that. Homesick Pilots has done some great stuff. I'm not a horror guy because me personally, I didn't grow up with that. I, I was scared for too long as a kid. So because I, I kind of missed the window to kind of to kind of appreciate the genre for, for the genre as opposed to it's scaring me. I don't want to see it. But late, I'm 36. Late in life now, I've come around and go, there's some interesting storytelling that you can do with comic books and horror. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Yes. What are some of your favorite uh, books, uh, horror-wise, in the comic industry that maybe inspired you or helped kind of push you to make this finally? Believe it or not, nothing. Just uh, horror movies, mostly. Horror movies, Lovecraft, Stephen King, just that. The comic books, I actually fell out of comic books. I was reading them religiously for a while, then it started getting too gimmicky with the covers. Artwork started declining, and I was just like, I'm done. Six covers for a single issue. Six covers, the hologram, the blanks, all that. I used to read Preacher and Spawn. Once Preacher was done, Spawn 100. Then I was just like, I'm done. I never even read Spawn. I read Haunt. (laughs) <laughs> so like uh, whatever <laughs> but where can people find the archive or if they want to buy your prints or anything online where can they find you uh, brace yourself my website is brianclegmastervillains.com and that has a link to my shop and all my social media accounts perfect and it's Clegg C-L-E-G-G yes awesome uh, is there any uh, other presents or any other upcoming projects that you have that you want to promote before I t- not really. I mean, I'm working on the uh, next issue, and you know, I'm, I'm going to keep drawing the villains, and I'm even starting a couple of heroes. So. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I look forward to the Sinestro print. <laughs> oh yeah, Sinestro. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Have a great rest of your con. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Brian Clegg, the master of villains. As mentioned, your best option to find the archive will be on his website, brianclegmasterofvillains.com. You can also there see a myriad of his available villain prints. Full disclosure, Brian was incredibly kind and gifted me a signed copy of the Archive Issue Zero to take home. 
The issue features nine pages of black and white art introducing us to the archivist before we presumably delve into the tales tweaked to be more tolerable for a twisted eternal being coming in future issues. The issue also features a lot of bonus content detailing the creation of this character and Brian's own artistic process. It's definitely a fun introduction for any horror comics fan to sink their teeth into. On to the next conversation! Hi guys, we are still day two here at Greater Austin Comic Con, and I am here with Ray Garza. How are you? Hey, how's it going? I'm good. Uh, Tank McGregor, tell me a little bit about Tank. Yeah, what I like to tell people is that Tank McGregor is a galactic bounty hunter who is out hunting for a sex robot. So, and then I tell him that it's based on my life, and people are like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you also shoot people through the head for eating a sandwich in space, or, or being generally talkative and annoying? Uh, yeah, I do, but uh, <laughs> only when I'm in outer space. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure to keep this interview short then. <laughs> well, I'm, it's definitely like I'm imagining uh, whenever somebody's like just talking at me like at work and not letting me get a word in and not realizing that I'm trying to work. That's definitely what I'm picturing in my head. Yeah, so I, I get inspiration from there and I put it in my books. It's very cathartic. It's a reference clearly to Tank, guys. I was reading a couple of pages online and I saw a dude trying to eat a bag lunch in space in a spacesuit and then get shot brutally through the head spoilers <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, that's actually in uh, book two and that one I like to tell people that uh, Tank McGregor is battling his biggest foe yet unemployment <laughs> uh, yeah I was I was paging through that and I was like you know this guy's trying not to be found or anything and then people are just finding him within two seconds <laughs> yeah it's uh, surprisingly easy to find him in like a giant galactic uh, society uh, one guy you know there are, yeah, that's true. There are a lot of bounty hunters in comics, of course. A lot of, yeah, as a DC fan, I'm thinking Lobo, uh, stuff like that. How does this bounty hunter story kind of differ a little bit from the others that other people may have read? Well, uh, I like to try to subvert expectations. I mean, he's a bounty hunter. He's like an amalgamation of all the 80s and 90s action heroes that I grew up watching, like the Schwarzeneggers, the Van Dams, Michael Dudikovs. The way I mix it up, though, is that I kind of like subvert uh, uh, the the seriousness of, the seriousness of it all, and I try to make it more comedic. So I try to mix in like Rick and Morty and like Futurama in there. So my guy will say like a one liner, but it'll be like a very nonsensical one liner. He'll shoot some guy through the head and be like, "That's what I call fast food." And everyone like really like goes like, "What are you talking about?" Like so, it's very very self self referential, and people see that he's kind of a ridiculous guy, you know. But uh, um, but it's very funny. It's an action adventure, and funny you mentioned like Lobo because I was more basing him on like. Bounty Hunters from video games, not so much comics. So I'm a big fan of like Metroid and Super Metroid, and Samus is like the biggest bounty hunter of video game world. Yeah. So I was like, I'm, I, I love Samus and like Space Bounty Hunter. I wanted to do that. I wanted to do a Space Bounty Hunter, and that's where Tank McGregor came from. Uh, is is Tank good at his job? He is, but not like on purpose. Okay. You know, like he'll get the job done, and he's like no nonsense, and he always completes the job. But uh, sometimes it could be by accident. Sometimes he could be like, oh, I didn't know how this happened, but sure, I'll take it. You know, a series of unfortunate events. He fails. He fails upwards. <laughs> fails forward. Yeah, that's that's how you that's how you do it. So you said that, uh, the pages I read was from volume two. How long have you been at this? Um, so volume one took me like five years to make. That started out uh, during the pandemic is when I was like sort of uh, finishing it up. 
Uh, and uh, but that one was five years, not because I was working on it so so hard, but because I was kind of like doing it on and off. You know, I'd come from home from work, I'd be tired. Sometimes I go months without doing it. Once I finished that one after five years, I realized like, oh wow, I can make a comic, and I was really eager to make a second one. That second one, which you read online, actually just took me three and a half years, and that one was like just working on it every single day. So in total, it's been like seven or eight years that I've had like Tank McGregor in my head and just been working on nothing but that. As an artist, is this the first time you've done sequential art for this comic, or have you been doing sequential art for other things beforehand? Uh, I mean, unless you count when I was like six and I made Spider-Man meets the Phantom, you know, and they battle it out. Um, yeah, this is the first comic in sequential art that I've ever done. I have a background in film, uh, so I did a lot of like scripts and like short films and stuff. Yeah. And uh, after a while, it just began to where I was taking my scripts and putting them into sequential art because I didn't have to depend on like a crew and like hire out and stuff like that. I could just do it all myself. So that's where I, my creation of comics began. So I'm not an artist by any means, but I know a lot of people spend a lot of time perfecting their style and stuff like that with like commissions or full page sketches and stuff like that. Once you got into the sequential side, what did you learn or change about your style that you didn't know previously once you started actually making a comic book start to finish? I learned, first of all, how doable it was. I feel like a lot of people, their biggest obstacle is thinking they can't do it because it's very undoable or very daunting. But like, I was doing it little by little. And honestly, just from drawing, I learned so much more. I learned how my drawings look to color. Um, the difference between book one and book two, the art is so much more intricate and detailed than book two because I started seeing what was possible after getting the first one colored, you know? So I have way more backgrounds, more locations. Um, in the first one, I was a very terrified to draw like noses. That's why Tank wears a giant visor over his head, you know? I didn't want to like get, even get, get into it. But after all that, uh, I, I just started getting better and like looking at more references and started like seeing other artists that I like and I, I taking from them. And I think uh, I just learned how to... Um, how to draw better really I mean just by doing it over and over and over and over I mean practice makes perfect yeah, absolutely who are some of your inspirations then the biggest inspiration for the Tank McGregor comic is uh, Mike Mignola and Hellboy you know um, reading Mike Mignola's books all the Hellboy books just the way that it, I mean calling them simple is sort of an understatement but he does draw very minimalistic yeah. um, but he makes it so beautiful and so uh, uh, attainable that I felt that I could do something like that, you know? So that definitely inspired me to go ahead and do it. And also the fact that it's like one guy facing these like different like adventures um, in a very weird sort of paranormal world uh, with mixed with sci-fi. It's very Tank McGregor, it's very Hellboy, you know? So I wanted to like take uh, my inspiration from there and just kind of make my own thing. Yeah, I, and again, I'm not an artist by any means, but I, I think I'd be safe in saying Mignola does with one line what a lot of artists have to do with like five or six like if you're let's say if you're trying to draw the folds in a trench coat like he can just do a couple of lines to really give it that depth where everybody else is like trying to curve and shade and do all kinds of stuff yeah it's infuriating yeah <laughs> um, I mean I've tried to flat out like just mimic his art style like with a lot of blacks a lot of shades and when I look at it I'm like this just looks like shit like it just looks like a, a pale imitation I don't know how he does it even if you like copy it to the T it just looks better when he does it yeah which is insane yeah well, where can people find Tank McGregor? I know that by the time this episode actually airs, the Kickstarter for the next one's already over, but where can people find it? Um, yeah, so they could find it at tankmcgregor.com. Uh, you could also go to my Instagram on tankmcgregorcomic, and that's McGregor with two Gs. Um, yeah, if you go there, you'll see all my art, and you'll see the links to wherever you need to go, and you can just get it online. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me, and have a great rest of your con. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming over and uh, checking us out. Awesome. <laughs> and that was my conversation with Reynaldo Garza. 
You can find everything you want regarding Tank McGregor on his website, tankmcgregor.com. That's T-A-N-K-M-C-G-R-G-G-O-R.com. Not only can you purchase the latest adventures of Tank, but you can also check out some preview pages as well. And speaking of, this violent, comedic space story features zany concepts such as large sunbathing embryos, robots with breasts, and so much more. If you're looking for a story that's full of action but doesn't take itself too seriously, this is the book for you. On to the next conversation. All right, guys, it is still day two here at Greater Austin Comic Con, and I am here with Robert Garcia. How you doing? Hey, not bad at all. How you doing? I'm well. I'm well. How's your con been so far? Con's been great. I haven't spent any of my own money. That's always a win, uh, but I think I'm actually going to pick up a couple of comics before I leave. Don't dig into your profits. I, I, I have yet to learn that lesson, and that's why I'm still struggling. <laughs> Luckily for me, the wall space of my apartment is already taken, so as much as I love any print, I can't get them. Dude, wall space, uh, my uh, my closet, I, 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 I'll put it anywhere. I'll put it in a box. I just got to have it. <laughs> so uh, you're here with Cheesy Comic Shops, but we're talking about Retribution. Tell me about Retribution. So, a little bit of history on myself. I used to work as an uh, anchor and reporter, more of a reporter, a crime reporter, uh, here in Austin, Texas, out in um, Tucson, Arizona, also El Paso, Texas. And so I had been writing a book, something that I, I, I felt like was cathartic to get out all of the trauma and things that I had seen throughout my career. And then about, I was about four years ago, I was like, why not make a comic of it? I love comics. I, I, I love you know, the, the whole field of being able to create and add something different to it. And so then at that point, I started developing a story that would work with what I had done professionally and also things that I had gone through personally, not just myself, but friends growing up and so on. So that's how I just started throwing attribution all together. And, and now we're three chapters in and it's, it's so far so good. Going great. You heard it here first. Robert Garcia, the next Tom King. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Tom's awesome. Yeah, No, if I could be, wow, who could I? Jason Aaron's awesome. Jason Aram is a... Uh, um, uh, Chip Zdarsky, God, yeah. I love it. Actually, you know what? If I could be anybody, I want to be Chip Zdarsky because I think he adds so much depth to the character. Love his Daredevil run. Love what he's doing with Batman. He's, I'm, I'm just a big fan of his. Yeah, great stuff, great stuff. But what's a bit, uh, tell us, uh, there's an obvious Spawn-type, Haunt-type in, influence here. Oh, I mean, look at the, <laughs> that's the Spider-Man influence for sure, a little bit. So the character... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just mad. My biggest joke is like, so you want to see something funny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here is my original idea on the character because I actually used to always draw this little like question marks. So that, that's my artwork. It's phenomenal, is it not? <laughs> so I always had this character in my, in my head because professionally and what I discovered with the trauma is there's so much to it, not just, oh, I, I, you know, I've gone through trauma and so on. It's about understanding it, accepting it. How do you move forward from it? How do you not move forward? And so I really wanted to write this story with the elements of what I had gone through professionally, but also personally. But then I also wanted to make it fun. Um, I'm not Deadpool, but my character is in his 20s. He's somebody who led a, uh, you know, led a hard life, but had one person in his life that meant the world to him. And she's part of this story as well. But I really wanted to do something that tied in sci-fi. Um, I've done a lot of research on my sci-fi because I love sci-fi movies. I've loved them my whole life. 
and I wanted to put something together that you know readers would would, would like and, and would appreciate. And so far, you know, knock on wood on my Insta, I get a lot of critique back and, and good critique, good feedback. I always post it. I have yet to tell me uh, anybody tell me this is junk and they <laughs> throw the comic. Social media being positive for once. Yeah, exactly. And, and it is shocking because it's not it's not just one or two things. It's it's you know I, I'd say. It, at least like in the 20s now as far as the type of feedback that I've gotten so uh, I'm happy with it it deals a lot with the state of Texas border culture I I really try to tie as much as I can into it without making it too overwhelming without getting too personal or uh, unless you want to you're talking a bit about trauma I think what's interesting about each of the trauma that we all experience throughout life is you can view it a certain way your entire life and you have this very clear-cut idea of what happened to you why it happened and then you go to therapy or something and it's like you have to recontextualize everything you went through because you're learning like the non-personalization about it like maybe that whatever traumatic event maybe it wasn't about you or whatever and you have to reprocess everything all over again in a completely different light what is that like putting that kind of Several perspectives on maybe one instance into a comic book. Well, first off, were you a psych major? No. <laughs> I, no, but I, re- I read psychology books for fun. Yeah, I, I was a psych major, but <laughs> I, I still, you would have smoked me in class. But yes, that is the whole depth, is trying to understand why things happened, how they happened. Because I have, uh, okay, little TMI here, yes, a victim of physical abuse, obviously emotional. Emotional, which I actually say is more cultural. I'm a Mexican-American. I'm, I always say I've been bleached, so I come off as I'm white. I'm bilingual, speaking English, speak Spanish, but just my own culture. I got kicked out of one, and I always make the joke, not Mexican enough for one, not white enough for the other. Yeah. And you, you go through that. And then sadly, yeah, I've had some issues in, in, when I was a child with like some sexual stuff as well. So it's, it, it's really about understanding why things happen and really trying to grow from that. And the comic itself, it's a dark comic. Yeah. I mean, it's a really dark comic. It's a hard-hitting comic. But I try to add some levity throughout this series to, you know, not bring people way too down. Yeah. But I really wanted this comic to be helpful. And like, as I mentioned with the sci-fi, I also want to make it interesting and make it something that people are, you know, want to keep coming back for. My biggest brag right now is three successful Kickstarters, a 70 plus retention rate with the people who are following it. So I, I think that speaks for itself. So I've been super happy with that. You're doing you're doing a great job with the marketing. The trade paperbacks look very, I love these variant covers with this red foil. That looks really cool, especially with the black and white. So, uh, and hey, stickers and marketing is, is on point. You're doing well. It, really lucky okay so first off I love the indie comic Instagram world because you meet great people yeah so I'm a big fanboy of artists I love comic book art I had it as a kid had it up on my walls and it literally I collect so many freaking variant covers just because I want the variant cover forget reading the book (laughs) even though I'm a writer I just want that art so one of the guys that you see here this is actually Kevin Keen who now is starting to become a name in the business because Kevin Keen who's a phenomenal black and white artist, now is working with McFarlane. He does variant covers for all four of them. Scorched, King Spawn, Gunslinger Spawn, and then also Spawn itself. Yeah. He has illustrated inside the pages of Gunslinger Spawn, and this last issue of King Spawn that just came out this last week, he did all the illustrations in. Wow. So far, he hasn't left me. <laughs> he's still willing to do covers for me, yeah. but he's blown up. Julia Gulazzi, who's also my main artist, she's out of Italy. And she just worked with Marvel and did Women of Marvel. And she's also doing uh, Masquerade with, I think it's Dark Horse Comics that's doing um, a Masquerade, if I'm right. I'm not 100% I think sure. So. But it's one of, the, one of the bigger names out there. So I'm, I'm just waiting for them to give me a lift up and take me with them. But the art was really important to me because I think the art really needs to depict the tone 
in the context of the story. And with that, I am super proud because I feel like we've come across, we've been able to bring that across, and, and, and that's what brings people in. And people walk by my booth, I don't have to open my mouth, automatically drawn into the art. You were talking a bit about the variant covers. I, too, love them. I read the comics, of course, but, like, uh, Nightwing currently, I am picking up an only variant covers because when Jamal Campbell does a variant cover, because holy shit, yes. is it just incredible. I, I will pay the dollar extra for the card stock. You were talking about wanting to be Chip Zdarsky. What are some of your influences and stuff that you're bringing into this series? So this is so weird because most of my influences, because I used to work in, in, in the biggest visual medium, TV and so on, they're movie people. I mean, I am a massive, a massive movie fan. I've been watching movies my whole life. So anybody you can name out there, and of course, I'm drawing a blank right now because my brain is, is, is mush, but it's basically anything cinema. I can watch, I can, I watch foreign films. I don't have a genre. I've never had a genre. I appreciate things for what they are. So I just, if I want to go sci-fi, I, I think Blade Runner. I, I mean, Blade Runner is like, that, that's my gig. I, I think uh, Space Odyssey 2001. I, I think Star Wars. I think Star Trek. Last I mean, Starfighter. Dude, good, 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 good. Thank you. I mean, everything from, uh, what was it? Uh, troop, space Troopers or whatever it was. I, mean, I watch everything. <laughs> that's all I do. <laughs> All right. Well, if people want to find Retribution, where can they find it? So on Instagram and on my website, it's Cheesy Comics Shop. So comics is plural. Uh, so at Cheesy Comics Shop on Instagram or, you know, CheesyComicShop.com. And all I've got my, uh, all my all my stuff up there. Sorry. I'm exhausted. It's been a long con. <laughs> well, I hope you have a great rest of your con. And thanks for speaking with me. Hey, thanks so much for coming over. Really appreciate it. And that was my conversation with our Robert Garcia. Everything you need to know about Retribution can be found at CheesyComicsShop.com. Don't forget, comics is plural, so CheesyComicsShop.com. There you can purchase the comic as well as find a link to his Instagram, which offers even more links, including an option to read Retribution digitally on Global Comics. Speaking of, the first issue is currently free to flip through on Global Comics, and this is a dark and violent revenge fantasy come to life. If you've ever allowed the darker side of your mind to wonder how things might be changed if the inhumane among us were dispatched with bloody fury, this is the blood-soaked comic for you. But everything, including Retribution, comes at a cost, so stick around and see just how personal that cost becomes. On to our final conversation of the episode. My time with Val Mayerick himself. All right, guys. It is day two, Greater Austin Comic Con, and I am with... The legendary Val Merrick. How you doing? Good. Well, uh, I heard that it all started in a painting class once upon a time. How did that start for you? I was uh, attending Youngstown State University as an art major, going nowhere. The art department was was rather left a lot was lacking, left a lot to be desired. I was in a painting class with a, another student, a guy named Joe Zabel, who was actually gone on to do some independent uh, comic book work. Uh, he did some work for Harvey Picar, and he still does some, some independent stuff, as far as I know. 
we were talking about comics, the ones we liked, the ones you know that we didn't, and we were being we were overheard by another student who was a, a woman who had she was in her 30s and she was coming back to college to finish her degree so she could teach and being in her 30s we were 22 she was like an old lady to us and she approached us and said I heard you guys talking about comic books have you ever heard of of a guy named Dan Atkins Dan Atkins of course being the anchor and uh, student of Wally Wood and you know did all sorts of work from Warren Publications and Marvel and DC and I said yeah we've heard of him she goes well he just lives down the street from me so I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere with this degree, so-called degree in, in, in art from YSU. And I, I like comics. I got together all my work that I could that I could get, that I could find that was comics related or, you know, might be appropriate to show Dan. And I just drove down to East Liverpool, Ohio, which is about 60 miles away from where I lived. And... Um, Show Dan my stuff. And he said, okay, you can come work with me. P. Craig Russell was already working with Dan. And uh, so for the next, I think, six months, I was living in East Liverpool and going to Dan's studio every day and uh, picking up what we could, helping Dan finish some jobs, inking this, penciling that. Um, and a few months later, we all took a big Greyhound bus to New York City and uh, met Roy Thomas and Stan Lee, and uh, I was, we were in. You know, I've interviewed a ton of creators, and every story about how they break into the industry is unique. I've actually been told by people, no one story will ever be the same, because once one door opens, it'll be closed forevermore for the next person in line. Well, I'm sure that's true, and, and, and in our case, I mean, this was a long time ago, and... and uh, you know, comics were a marginal medium then. They were not anywhere near the, the center of attention that they are now. No movies of any import had been made uh, of, of, of superheroes or comic book characters. So, you know, it was just, you just, you just went to the uh, address of Marvel Comics in Manhattan and got on the elevator and went up, right up to the offices. You couldn't do that today. No, no way. Um, and... And uh, it, it was a different world, but unfortunately, we were at the right place at the right time. Yeah. One of my favorite people I ever interviewed was uh, Denny O'Neill. I've interviewed him a couple of times. We're a wonderful guy, and rest in peace. But uh, he told me a lot of great stories about working in those bullpens and going into the offices and just shooting the, shooting the shit with each other just uh, in the offices back in the day. And I've heard a lot about Roy Thomas. What was it like working with Roy? Uh, well, Roy, Roy's very good, you know, very good at what he did. He's a good writer, very professional guy. I never worked really in that closely with Roy. Craig did. Um, and, and Roy, Roy, you know, Roy was a, was, was a, he had his, he had his own agenda that when he came to Marvel and any, any, any instituted it very well. And, uh, he, you know, launched a lot of books and characters um, I really, really didn't get to know Roy all that well, but in, in, in your, the reference that you made to, you know, the bullpen, I mean, it really was a bullpen of people. You would go up there, and there were no computer screens, of course, and, and there was all this just, you know, hustle and bustle kind of noise, noise of, uh, the noise of busy people. And you saw all this original art lying around, like Jack Kirby just turned in a few pages yesterday, and it's lying there, you know, Kirby pencils, you know, before they even inked, and Gil Kane covers, and... Uh, and, and Johnny Romita stuff. I mean, just, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, for a comic book fan, a comic book lover, someone who, who wanted to be in comics like Craig and I did, was you, you were in heaven. You know, you couldn't believe you were there. 
You did a few inks over some of Dan's stuff, didn't you? Or did you do some of the pencils for some of his layouts? I did some of the pencils for his layouts. Dan eventually ended up inking some of my stuff, actually. The, the, the first comic book I did, the full, full, full-length comic, was The Invisible Man adaptation. And Dan inked that, the entire book. I, I penciled it, Dan inked it. So with the bullpen, and this is, this is just my you know, millennial comic book uh, idealized version of what that would be like, somebody's doing pencils and then literally passes you the page to ink? No. It, it could have been, I suppose. There were people that actually, that actually did work in the office. The, the, situa- the, the, the um, procedure that I would follow when, say, say, Craig or anybody else that was a freelancer, we would pencil the pages, send them to Marvel. They would be uh, reviewed and okayed. Then they were sent to the letterer. The letterer then would literally letter right directly on top of those pencils. And uh, that was part of the art. And then they were sent to the inker. From the inker, they went to the printer. The printer, the coloring process in those days, of course, was very, very elemental, very prim- primitive. And they, that process was just basically by number. You know, the, it was coded. And um, so, you know, the coloring sometimes came out, you know, substandard. You know, the, the coloring was, was where things could get messed up, you know. And so... You see a lot of the old newsprint where it's like a misaligned or whatever. And yeah, and also because some of the colorists didn't really have an eye, a really good eye for this. Like, you know, there would be some really nice line work you did, did you know, with, with the inking and, and uh, you know, some textures put on, say, a, a costume or, or a character's hair or something like that. And, and suddenly it was just obscured with a dark purple, you know, and... and Things like that. Marvel's colors were rather... The, the, the coloring was a little bit glaring. I, you know, I, I'm fascinated not just with your work, but just the, the era in which you guys did it. Because, uh, you know, you hear stories, especially with Man-Thing. You know, uh, I heard that, like, there's there's the rumors out there that Len and Jerry Conway were roommates and when Swamp Thing and Man-Thing were created. And then it's one of the closest times of DC and Marvel stealing from each other almost those two characters came across at the same time and these these stories you're talking about with raw pages of Kirby and stuff that just doesn't happen anymore and I'm just fascinated by this era and you got a chance to just live in it not only that but coming up under Dan who came up under Wally Wood what was those influences like on your style and your art having those that Dan is a mentor who had Wally as a mentor so surely Wally must have influenced him Oh, yeah. I mean, everything Dan knew, he learned from Wally, yeah. especially the inking techniques. Dan was a very, very good inker. I mean, technically, he was a very good inker. And he, he was the one that told me to, I, I, when I was in college and, and I, I was doing some comic strip type things for the college yearbook, and I was inking with a, with a pen nib. Um, I mean, it was, it, was, it was an India ink and, and pen nib. It's traditional technique, but it was with a pen. And I thought everybody inked with a pen and maybe just, you know, inked in the solid blacks with, with a brush, some kind of a brush. And then I saw some of Dan's work, and I couldn't believe all the fine line work he was able to achieve with a brush. And he learned that from Wally. Wow. Uh, and a lot of those influences, I say, I, I, when I was looking up your, your credentials, I not only went through your publication, but because you worked under Dan, I looked up his stuff. And because he worked under Wally, I looked under his stuff. I see a lot of similarities, a lot of monsters, a lot of horror, a lot of barbarian type characters. Is that just what draw you in naturally? Because I know you also did some advertising work, some film work and stuff like that. I've seen a lot of your work uh, and it seems almost pulpy, pulp inspired. 
Is that is that just your own style, or is that something you grew up a lot just loving and decided to jump into those styles? Well, I, I think it's a style that would have emerged from me naturally anyway. But if, yeah, of course you're influenced by by the people that you that have taught you something or people you admire. I also think there's you may not be able to see it, but but I feel I see it a lot of. Uh, Neil Adams in my work as well. I, I worked with Neil for about a year at Continuity. I, I loved his line work. Um, I, I loved the way he would uh, lay out pages. Um, and I, I felt that there was some of that influence, you know, pretty apparent in my work. Um, but what you were, um, when you were talking about Dan and, and Wally's work, you know, I, when I was a kid, I read Mad Magazine a lot. And Wally did a lot of work for Mad. And something about that just really stuck with me you know even though when i was just a kid 12 years old i didn't know i'd be doing comics but looking at that stuff it it really made an impression on me and so whenever i was doing a city scene or you know buildings or cars i would think of the way wally would do it you know wally and and or and well um al williamson that that guy was a brilliant draftsman as well you talk about Wally, and especially I was—I thought of a—I uh, can't remember the quote right now, but I did read a quote about Wally. Max Gaines said he was probably one of the best artists that he ever had to work with him. Oh, uh, I'm sure. I mean, but you know that generation. I mean, look at all those guys that worked for Mad. Um, you know, Mort Drucker and those 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 guys were ex- exceedingly fine illustrators. Um, the likes of which you know you you barely see anymore. I mean, you do see. I, I have seen. Coming to conventions, I'll, I'll go around when I've got a spare moment and look at some of the portfolios of the younger artists that are working today. And I see people that are taking the time to learn this kind of draftsmanship. And it's very impressive. Um, and uh, there, some of these young inkers, especially at, at Marvel, they're really good. And they're getting paid crap. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. But um, I think, I think you, you know, there's... There's, there's always something new, and there's, innovation is important, and innovation is, is, you know, you have to keep looking for new ways to solve old problems, but at the same time, you know, valuing the past and what came before, and the people that already solved a lot of those problems, you know, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel, as they say, and um, guys like, like Wally and, and, and all the, the, the comic strip artists, not the book, but the strip artists of that generation, you know, those guys were excellent and I still hearken back to even though I don't do comics that much anymore whenever I'm you know given an assignment to do a, 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 a comic book style storytelling or breakdowns I always hearken back to those guys I pre- and then you know what I may not be the best interviewer in the world but this is part of the reason I do this podcast is I have such a fascination with comic book history and everything that happened before and you were talking about crap page rates and stuff like that that people are getting it was trending on twitter not too long ago people getting undercut underbid all the time and never paid what they're worth and uh you know i think it's uh you're talking about working actually under uh with neil adams and i got a chance to speak with him several years ago before he passed and uh, boy <laughs> talk about an east coast guy <laughs> he's uh, he was definitely a character um what was it like working hand hand in hand with him for that for that year that you were with him well, that was great. That was one of the best uh, times of learning and picking up stuff in my life. First of all, continuity itself, the studio that Neil was operating, that place itself was, was, it was a magnet. It was a Parnassus. I mean, people, for, at, at that time, almost everybody in the business was living in or around Manhattan. So at some point during you know, any given month, you're going to have 
all the best people, you know, coming, you know, coming to just just dropping in to say hi and showing what their their latest pages and what they're working on. And you you know you 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 can't beat that with a stick, man. That's just great when you when people that you admire and 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 um, other colleagues that you respect, you consider to be your your peers, are coming in and showing you stuff. It just immediately makes you want to go out and start doing, and, you know, doing, you know, get getting back to work, you know, and back to the drawing board. And uh, you, you know, you don't get that through Zoom or online, you know, and, and uh, it just uh, it was it was a marvelous a marvelous time experience. And Neil Neil was a I mean, Neil was a person, that was, a, you know, he, he was a presence in that studio. Neil was a personality. Um, he definitely... Big bombastic voice. Yeah, and he, and he, and he, had, he had his, his quirks. Um, he could be cruel to young artists in terms of his, whenever, whenever, whenever it came to, like, critiquing their portfolios. But usually he was correct. He may not have said it in the most diplomatic way, but he was, he was usually right. Um, what I learned also from Neil was just the incredible work ethic. I mean, Neil didn't really make any real money at comics. Neil made his money doing storyboards and animatics for advertising. And um, that guy was in the studio, you know, 12 hours a day. And doing comics when he, when he had an extra couple of hours to, to do something on the side. And, um, and also maintaining that, that discipline involved in like, okay, now I'm doing a storyboard for Cunningham and Walsh, so... They require this kind of a drawing technique, and and storyboard framing and storyboard te- storytelling is not the same as comics because the frames are all the same size, and and some of the little scenarios might be a little boring, you know, a woman holding up you know some sort of a, a dishwashing detergent product, but he could go he could go, then go directly from that to inking a Batman page, you know, um, the the guy was just an, he was an, he was a machine he was it was amazing and he, he seemed to never tire. Um, he would he would come to work with bad colds, um, so that certainly made an impact on me. You know the the, the work ethic, and and the fact that he um, maintained. I mean, continuity could have been a mess. I mean, there were a lot of guys there, and everybody had their ego, and there were people there that some of them just wanted to rent space and work. Others wanted to get up front and work with Neil, and um, it could have easily gotten out of hand. And without, 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 without actually, you know, becoming, you know, General Patton, Neil kept it in order. And uh, that was pretty amazing, too. I, I, I don't know, my, there's neither myself nor any of my contemporaries, I think, have ever, you know, attempted to um, uh, create something like continuity. It would have been really difficult, especially now, to, you know, you know, open up a studio and have six or seven different personalities walking around. And um, we... You know, so so there were there was that that um, that dimension to continuity too, which I think was pretty unique. Yeah, absolutely. When you got the chance to work on your own books and do your own titles, like with Man Thing, and you've been asked every question under the sun about Man Thing, but uh, one aspect of it that's curious is to me is because as, as I'm a student of comic book history, I love the the. Senate subcommittee trials on juvenile delinquency, the invention of the code, its downfall, so on and so forth. What was it like working on a horror title right about the time that the fangs were taken out of the comics code? Yeah, you know, I I still, at the time I was working on those titles, I felt somewhat constrained. Um, I didn't actually you know, have a visceral feeling myself, but I could get it, I, I, I got it from the script. The script was obviously like, you know, don't make this too gross, you know, don't make the guy's guts fall on the floor, you know. Um, b- b- 
they were just allowing there to be some blood in like Conan, you know, he, when he, when he, you know, damn near cuts a guy in half with a sword, there's, you know, some, some splash, some spray of blood, although it might have been just black inking. They, they, it wasn't red blood. Um, and, and then Heavy Metal Magazine came out, of course, which didn't have a lot of those constraints. And so that was having an influence as well. And, and a lot of, you know, independent or smaller comic companies were coming out, Eclipse and so forth, and they were breaking, they, they were, break, you know, breaking yeah. some of those boundaries. So it was, it was kind of nice. It was, you knew that you, if you wanted to, you could go that direction. Yeah. And, you know, you had mentioned, you know, the comic book industry has completely changed. It's, it's big business now. It's interesting too, because not only are you on the, the kind of cusp of the comic, the comics code, having those really strictures slowly taken out, but also you're one of the first people to see your work turned into a film. So what was it like to go from, this is an industry nobody really wants to be. Nobody really wants to be associated with. Uh, the original creator of Green Lantern, Martin O'Dell, wrote under a pseudonym because it was seen as awful to be involved in comics. Yeah. And then you know you came up in the '70s and everything, and then all of a sudden there's big budget pictures made with stuff that you created. What was that like? Well, I, quite honestly, it it, I, it didn't really have that much of an impact on me because first of all, the Duck movie was not like the comic at all. And Steve uh, did not like the movie. And Steve told me to avoid the movie. And believe it or not, I didn't see that movie until 2013. Oh, wow. Um, I, I I didn't have any st- strong yearning to see it uh, after st- talking with Steve about it over the phone. And uh, when, I first, when I first came to Texas, like, I was in Texas for about a year, and all of a sudden... Howard shows up in the Guardians of the Galaxy, so that suddenly brings my profile back into the into the picture. Right. And um, a friend of mine who was at the time involved with the with the uh, convention uh, scene managed to um, procure a thirty five millimeter film of Howard the Duck and had the Alamo Draft House screen it. Oh, wow. and, and then I did a Q and A afterwards, and I. Enough time had gone by. I mean, my lord, thirty years there. I could just watch it and see it for what it was. Not take it personal. Yeah, and I, I didn't. I, I I knew this was not the Howard the Duck character I ever worked on with Steve at all. But it was okay, you know. And the movie itself, I thought, was a lot of fun. You know, it had you know like uh, state of the art special effects for that time, which meant they were really blowing stuff up. They think that wasn't all digital digitized, you know. And animatronic puppets. And yeah. And um, I thought the duck, the duck character, in terms, especially the voice that they chose for it, was kind of lame. But the movie, in and of itself, was was okay. You know, I I, I got a kick out of it. Um, and I didn't actually see that as like, you know, so much of that character is Steve. I mean, there've been there've been various artists on the book. The early artists uh, of the early ones, including myself, I think the best was Gene Colan. Gene did a terrific job. And then then there's been later uh, artists, you know, recently. And so the character, I don't, I don't really consider that the, as, as much my creation of Steve's, because that was Steve's alter ego. You know, Steve really got to uh, do a lot of the satire and stuff he wanted to do through that character. That he, yeah, that he couldn't have done with, with a, say, a monster or a superhero or what, you know, whatever, whatever genre was, 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 was available at the time to, to work with. So I, 
it wasn't like you know this was my story and 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 you know I wasn't like James O'Barr with with the with uh, the crow that that was that came really that was his all his it came out of his soul it and, and uh, he he worked hard on that to get that out there and and then it, then you know it became a franchise essentially I didn't feel that kind of connection with the duck however um, you're right it, it it was one of the first um, comic book characters to go to the big screen this this was even before Michael Keaton's Batman. It was it was you know right shortly after you know Christopher Reeve's Superman. So yeah, it was unique in that sense. It was historical. Yeah, for sure. And and you've seen everything go from the bullpen to the big screen to, I think four out of the five top grossing films of all time is comic book movies. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, it is. And uh, I'm I'm really. I have. I'm very. I have I'm very ambivalent about what I think about that. I think it's. I think it's interesting. I think it's. It also tells me that there's something odd about American culture with with an obsession with a bunch of guys in tights, you know, who have superpowers. And um, I guess it's kind of like what the Western was when I was a kid. There were there were like I think at one point when I in the fifties there were like thirty thirty or some Western programs on every week. Um, that 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 you know that there was something in there in that in that genre that signified something to people at the time resonated with them. Superheroes apparently do that now. It's American mythology. I mean, it, it, is, it is in a way, but I I I I think it I think it more is indicative of a hunger for a for a mythology as a, as opposed to because that when you really look at them. I mean, I, I know that they hire these really fine British actors now, and, and they try to they try to bring some really, you know, humane, you know, some some deeper human psychological aspects to these characters. But the fact of the matter is, it's still people that have superpowers that no people are ever going to have, and they're in these silly outfits, and they're fighting villains that really could never exist. And it it it, it is fun. It is entertaining. I'm not putting it down. I'm just want, making it just. I guess where I'm going is is that um, I would also like to see it some other. I, I think I think it would be nice if there was other um, cultural um, icons going on at the same time to kind of counterbalance this, um, because it it is it is kind of juvenile. It, it is it does come from kids' fantasies. It's interestingly enough that there's two two. I'll, I'll quote two people here. Neil Adams being one. Neil loved superheroes. He loved comics. And he says someday, comics will be the will be, will will completely overtake the um, popular culture uh, popular culture of the, of the country and of the world. And we thought he was silly because you know this was even before the first Christopher Reeve movie. And we thought, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, there's you, you think you know there's there's important work being done. There's serious films being done, and you know. You know, Meryl Streep's crying at these films, and this is—we have to pay attention to this. You know, and and and, and Neil turned out to be right, um, for better or for worse. Yeah, and, profit or doomsday profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also, um, a couple of years ago, I was on a panel with Howard Chaikin, and and Howard said something. Howard and I were friends in New York, and Howard and we shared a studio space. He said something that I thought was interesting. He said that, that our generation, mine and his. We thought comics were dying. And I said, what do you mean by that, Howard? How do you think comics are? He says, well, maybe not completely. What he meant by that was that, you know, 
we were coming. We came along when heavy metal magazine was was make, making the scene. We came along when things were changing, yeah. and we thought, oh wow, now we can do all kinds of stuff with comics. You know, like the stuff that Howard's done. You know, and uh, and the stuff that Harvey Pekar's done. And, you know, there's all these different genres that now can be represented in, in comics. And so not, not comics we're dying, superheroes. Not. Yeah, so yeah. superheroes, right? Like, we were going to be doing yeah. the the more interesting sci-fi adaptations, whatever. And so he was right in that sense, too. I didn't really... I, I, I sensed that, too. I thought, yeah, you know, superheroes, that's that's kid stuff. And I, I don't want to be doing it. And Howard doesn't want... Howard doesn't like superheroes, either. And um, so kind of going around about here I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what your original question, <laughs> question was but um, I think I, I think you were you were you were asking me just about the the, the evolution of the industry now, yeah yeah big budget Hollywood yeah and, I, and, and, and then I was on a, I was on a panel yesterday with James O'Barr and and um, and, uh, and uh, Collie Hamner and we were talking about how you know the the, the comic books made people want to make movies out of this and then and then it's 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 making people people are going the people that read the comics are going to the movies but the people going to the movies are not running off to the comic book stores you know at the comic shops after the movie's over and that's there's there's something missing there why why aren't they um there's there's um part of its marketing yeah yeah and so i would say that um and also people are now doing they're, they're doing all these crowdfunders to get a comic book done so they can pitch it as a movie. Yeah. And it's like, if you want to learn about the movie business kid, take some film classes, you move to L.A. Or, or wherever they're making movies, and get on a film crew and figure out how this stuff's done. But, you know, if you want to do a comic, do a good comic book. Do that first. Yeah. Um, because because then if, then if you can't pitch it to a movie studio, at least you've got a good comic book there. Yeah. You've, you've, you've got a piece, of, you've got an artifact that's worth something. They're in a rush to create IP, not something unique and original. Exactly, exactly, and that's something that, you know, being a being of my generation and my age, that that's a, that's a new phenomenon, you know, and that that's a phenomenon that a lot of people just take for granted now, and I think that's a mistake. I I, I think that um, it's like saying, well, I want to I want to be a, an architect so I can make a movie. No, no, be an architect, yeah. you know. So, it's fine to become a movie producer later, but yeah. let's get the one thing right first yeah. and then move to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but if people want to find your stuff and you're, you're doing some new projects now, aren't you? Uh, well, I, a couple of years ago, I did a, a, a graphic novel, produced a graphic novel called D- of Dust and Blood, which was about the Little Bighorn. It's a historical um, book, but it, it's historically based, but it's a, it's a very entertaining book. And I did some really nice... I love horses in the Old West, and so I did some great illustration for that. Um, I've got an idea now that we're playing around with my writer friend and, and I call about... And it, it involves uh, dinosaurs and cowboys. So... I'm down. Run with that, yeah. yeah. I grew up as a kid wanting to be a paleontologist. I'm there. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing... Um, I'm, I'm in the process of produ- producing a lot of art for that now, and uh, not comic art yet, not any, any continuity art, but, but paintings. Yeah. Um, I'm doing uh, advertising as it uh, sometimes, uh, and if, with comic stuff. There's a there's a guy out of Chicago named um, Austin Huff who's been producing a, a little a line of books called the action the um, what's he called that oh. Anyway, it's his own line of action hero, kind of retro action heroes, um, and I've been doing some stuff for him. Um, he's gonna hate me for it because I forget the name of the of the the series, but. 
you won't it won't mean anything to anybody if they can't look at. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, it it's um it's nice stuff and and it's not a lot. Uh, it, I don't. I'm, I'm doing like 10, 12 page stories for him, and uh, so I'm getting my, my my hand is still back in comics, and I, I enjoy that. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's what's going on. If people want to find you, do they just go to your website, or do you have social media that you use? I'm on Facebook, okay. and I'm on. I don't do Instagram or Twitter, um, but um, I I am on Facebook, and I do have a website, valmerrick.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, and I wanted to personally thank you. Uh, just for contributing to this medium and the characters that I love so much. So thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. And, you know, it, it's really good for me to hear from guys like you and participate in, in interviews with guys like you because I realize that, you know, this this part of my life in this history of this medium is is culturally significant to the country. And I, yes, I contributed to it, and I also don't want to see it disappear. It's exactly why this show is called Creative Credit. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for your time. And that was my conversation with Val Mayerig. As you can tell, I spent some time researching Val's body of work and experience. I made several contacts with other creators while at Greater Austin Comic Con and exchanged contact information for potential future episodes of the show. I offered Val a similar option, but he requested that we speak in real time while at the convention. Not only that, Val made sure to step off the convention floor to go backstage with me to conduct our conversation in relative privacy. And that made me feel very at ease. I don't have much commentary to make on that conversation. I think it stands on its own as a wonderful experience. I also wanted to make note of something I've heard in my own re-listening of the podcast. I seem to circle back to saying similar things each time I speak with a new creator whether it's mentioning previous conversations with Denny O'Neill or Neil Adams, or my love of Jamal Campbell's variant covers on Nightwing, or the theory that every pathway into the comics industry is unique, etc., etc., etc. One of the things I strive to do with my conversations on this podcast, especially the more typical episodes where I've done diligent preparations ahead of time, is ensure that I avoid asking the kinds of questions a creator has been asked ad nauseum in every other interview they've ever done. This is for the creator as much as myself and my audience. A lot of those questions also come across as form questions, or rather, questions that you can ask literally any creator of any discipline without much effort. Anything with a note of repetition in creator conversations, those conducted by myself or even by others, bores me. And I've noticed myself doing that with these points of reference I make when talking to creators. Of course, I'm not speaking in those moments to you, the listener, but rather giving context to the conversation with the individual I'm speaking with. But I have to acknowledge the repetition here and ask that you bear with me on that. Perhaps I'll try to better recognize those references in the moment, or maybe cleverly edit them out. As we end the episode, I want to again thank Brian and Sela Douglas of Pathway Comics, Ryan of the Asteroid Coffee Crew, Brian Clegg, Master of Villains, Reynaldo Garza of Tank McGregor, R. Robert Garcia of Retribution, and of course, Val Mayerick. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow the show, you can follow it on Twitter at creative credit underscore. 
You can also send an email to the new dedicated podcast email at creativecreditpod at gmail.com. And now I'm proud to say that you can find Creative Credit on Spotify. Until next time, remember, Marvel or DC, television or film, print or digital, we're all comic fans. And as Alan Moore once said, life isn't divided into genres. It's a horrifying, romantic, tragic, comical, science fiction cowboy detective novel. You know, with a little bit of pornography if you're lucky. Thank you.